a quick hello and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Michael. Very nice. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Absolutely wonderful. We're going to start off with another word about Ukraine. Anton, if you put the the screen up, Anton's collecting uh, money for cats and dogs in Ukraine, something we don't really think about during this incredibly difficult war. Um, uh, Helping the cats and dogs that have been left behind that are wandering the streets or have even been left in apartments. Uh, so please do give to buymeacoffee.com slash Anton Shulker to buy a coffee for Anton. But in fact, it's not buying a coffee for Anton. It's buying food for the cats and dogs who have gone astray in Ukraine during the war. So on with the show, um, I've been, I always start off with a brand set and I looked at yours. And in fact, what I came up with when I looked for Mike Ulmer, uh, it actually shows me Mike Ulmer, the football player from the 19. 19- 50s, 60s, oh, I don't wow. really And then you're actually Michael Ulmer, who's nice. an author, with two illustrators and another author in your knowledge panel and Penguin Random House um, buyout. But they call you Michael Ulmer, so you come up as Michael Ulmer instead of Michael Ulmer. Isn't in that interesting? Isn't that cool, isn't interesting? It? Thank you. So one thing you might want to do is either choose one or the other and stick to it so that Google doesn't get confused because it's likely to think you're two people. But what I also did, if we look at the next one, is find all of your books. Now, the question is, has Google got all of your books there? Is that all of them? Have you got more or has it got some of them wrong and they're not yours? Oh, are there any more? Like, does it go, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 12, 13. Yes, that's, that's, those are the mainstream published books. Uh, right. yeah, I think so. But I also have five that my company's produced. So, but those are all the books with my name on. Yep. That's okay. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, right. So Google's doing a great job. And what's really kind of interesting from my perspective, at least is sometimes Google does an amazing job and it gets all 13 books, the right name, the right person, uh, the right bio. And sometimes it gets it totally wrong. And for you, it's got it totally right. And you've made no effort for that at all. Well, except for the name thing, you make a really great point. How do I fix that? You just need to refer to yourself as either Michael or Mike absolutely everywhere. Um, and if you've referred to yourself as Michael on the books, especially yeah. in Google books, you're going to have to switch to Michael because that's going to be really difficult to get it to switch oh, to Mike. Okay. Thank you. So, that's really, that's really great information. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got in that kind of thing, it's a, it's a really interesting question from the point of view of if you're going to change something about yourself in Google's brain and it's mine, this child, as we discussed the other day. Yes. You, at least in the short term, you really need to pick the path of least resistance, which yes. is the one that it has the best grip on. And in that case, it's going to be the, the books, the, the person who wrote the books, and that's going to be Michael. Yes, yes. But we had a conversation the other day, and you said, you're a fool, Jason, for calling your book The Fundamentals of Brand for Business. Um, you should have talked about Google as a child. So, in fact, if we can put up the next one, the green screen, there we go. Google as a child, learn to educate. Oh, I love that of Google, but popped as a child. I love it as well. My ex-wife, Veronique, did that. She's absolutely brilliant at illustrations. And then I actually wrote a talk, and I've taken it even further now. Google is a child. We need to learn to educate it. But all big tech platforms are children with knowledge graphs that are children. We need to learn to educate them. So it actually goes not only for Google, but it goes for Amazon. It goes for Bing, Microsoft. It goes for Apple, Facebook, Twitter. All of them have got knowledge graphs. All of them need to be educated because they're all still at the child stage. I think that's brilliant. Now, for your cover, we have to put your face on the cover because 
you're your product. Everyone is their product. And, and I know lots of people aren't comfortable with putting their face on the cover. But it's, I think it's really essential for a business book to know, have a relationship with the person who's writing it. So we would right. put your, your face on the cover. Yeah, I mean, some people don't like their voices. Some people don't like their faces. My, I think my voice is okay. I don't particularly that's like my face. But my daughter took a great picture, and that's the one I use everywhere. Oh, use absolutely use that one, and, and it's. I think that's really essential. And no, I don't think anyone likes the voice. Although I, I agree, you have a lovely voice. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you. So charming. And <laughs> we feel embarrassed about having our faces on the, on the cover. But look, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, see, it, it can it can work. Look at that. Oh, you've got your photo really big on the cover. So you are your own product, as it were. You're the the selling point or you're just representing it. I think everybody is. I don't, I don't know that there's any business where you're not the selling point at the end of the, at at the end of the day, we all sell a fairly limited range of of products. If you look at the United States, there are 130,000 lawyers and about 115,000 McDonald's. There right. are more lawyers than McDonald's in the United States, all of whom do pretty well the same thing. They may have an area of specialty, but all mm-hmm. of whom do pretty well the same thing. So that face is that face and your story are your only two fingerprints. And and those are the right. those are the unique things that nobody else has or does. And that's why you have to invest in them. Right. Oh, which also I mean for, for the audience, that's incredibly important. But also Google analyzes images and recognizes people from their photos. So actually your photo becomes part of Google's child's recognition of who you are and what you do. If you uh, put into reverse image, look at my photo, it will tell you it's Jason Barnard. Yes. If you show it a different photo where I've got a kind of different face from five, 10 years ago, it will just say, oh man, which is rather depressing. (laughs) Well, now the idea of Google as a child, how did you... How did we stumble upon, was it that something you and I stumbled upon or had you said that before or tell me how that, because that's a brilliant analogy. Right. Yeah. No, it's in the book. I've been saying it for years. I actually started talking about it in 2015 and I used a picture of my daughter when she was seven or eight years old to represent the child. Um, And I gave my very first talk uh, at a conference in France in 2015. Um, And it's in the book as well, but I hadn't realized until we talked quite how powerful it is. What I did realize is it's a very good analogy and it flies and flies and flies and flies. I haven't yet found something that I can't actually fit into this analogy. Well, that's called the hook, right? That's what we talked about before. It's that one amazing proposition that is a little contrarian. Mm. And when you walk by it on a cover, you you find your head sort of turning over. That's a great, great hook. I just love it. I just love (laughs) it. Right, yeah. And the fundamentals of brand search for business, which is what I call my book, is a really bad hook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you don't turn your head when you see that. You turn no. it the other way. But Google is a child, how to nurture it, grow it, and make it your friend or whatever the subtitle is, which is important. Yeah. You've, you've, you've hit it. And right. of course, well, you, I, have, you have a brilliant backstory, and I don't know how many of your listeners know, and I don't know how much of it you want to tell, but you also have a superb, superb backstory. Uh, and, uh, and, right. and the purpose of the backstory, remember is not the backstory is in your book. The purpose of the backstory is to display your character. It's, to, right. it's for someone to look at that and go, Oh, this guy's really got some stick to this. He's really persistent. He's obviously he's, 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 he's a smart guy. You don't ever want to say I'm a smart guy. You don't ever want to say I'm a persistent guy. Never tell a client, by the way, that 
that uh, that I I'll, I'll do better for you because I care more for you. What crap that is! Right. But people observe things based on your backstory, and when we observe things, they're far, far, far more heavily imprinted on our judgment and center and our, and our decision making capabilities when we see it than when we're told it. And that's the purpose of the backstory, and the only purpose of the backstory. Right. So kind of how do I build my backstory? Because my immediate problem the first time we talked was that yeah. I've got the, the folk punk group, I've got the blue dog and yellow koala, I've got living huh. in Mauritius, and I've got um this idea of good as a child. Yeah. And for me, I was going, well, which one do I choose or do I tell them all? And your answer to that was? Oh, my answer for that, you probably got a better memory of, of, of than I do, but as long as the story sort of leads you to to your conclusion. And, and, and so having an extraordinarily varied backstory is great because it's, it reveals you to be an open thinker, an imaginative guy, someone who finds things that other, other people sort of gloss over or miss. And that's super great because that's really your business. So as long as don't make the mistake, and, and you won't, of, of thinking your backstory is your book. Any story that doesn't serve the purpose of illustrating your character or showing the journey that you made. And that's really important too, to to show how you stuck with it. And it took 30 years to find this. That's who you want to buy from. We don't want someone that just went, Oh, I got an idea. Sir. (laughs) So, um, so we want people who have made the journey and that's what the backstory really amplifies. And plus it's entertaining and your, your backstory is really entertaining. Right. Okay. Well, that, that leads me to the, the next question. So I thought I've got too much for, of a backstory and I can't present it simply. What happens when somebody kind of comes to you and they say, well, I don't actually think I've got a backstory. Well, everyone has a backstory. You know, here's a, here's a backstory. My dad, to walk our dog, Spunky, would take Spunky into the back of the car. He would drive out to the country. He would take the dog, put the dog out of the car and then drive away. Right. <laughs> Poor Spunky would be going, <laughs> terrible, terrible story. But when you're, you're nine years old, you think, oh, I guess everybody does that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so but, a, a, a backstory can be as simple as that. It's one small part of something you did. Yeah. yeah but the, the, I tell that story to illustrate how what we consider to be kind of normal behavior isn't necessarily normal behavior at all. It's just because, and of course you get older and you realize, no, people don't throw their dogs out the car door and have the dog chase them. And it becomes a kind of a great story about how nutty my dad was. But it, it illustrates how for a while I didn't know there was any difference. Anything that's amazing in our, in our stories, it was us. So we quite naturally don't think it's that important or that revelatory. And only when someone else goes, wow, do you realize, yeah, that's a very, very potent, powerful story. People often tell me they have no backstory. And then we spend 10 minutes and we find they have an amazing backstory. Everyone just mm-hmm. glosses over their story because it's them. You know, and right. there are three questions that you always will get a story from somebody. Okay. Right. That, 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 that was going to be my, my, my question. Ah. What is your process? But before that, yeah. you actually make a living helping people develop what their story is going to be yes yes and it takes time it takes sometimes we, we speak for hours and and uh, and don't really come up with it sometimes we find it in the first 10 minutes it's the the story isn't so much what we really look for is the hook so you have that brilliant hook about google which is just terrific but i'll give you an example of a hook so i was doing a book with my friend mark Petipa, and his book is on servant leadership 
And we were talking about millennials because all the boomers like us love running down the millennials. And so mm. he, he said, you know, and we hadn't, we hadn't really hit upon it. Servant leadership is 50 years old. It's not fresh. It's not new, particularly, but it's very valuable, but it's not sexy. Right. And so Mark said, you know what they're asking for? The millennials are dead right. They want a transparent uh, a promotion change. They want to know change. They want to know how they're doing. They want to be treated equally, equitably. And and uh, and if they don't get it, the difference between them and us is they'll walk because we told them they're very special and they can do whatever they want and they should do what they love. So they'll mm. walk, and that's the difference. And I and, and he said I admire that. And I said, Wow, Mark, you're like a 50 year old millennial. <laughs> Boom. Wonderful. So right, that's what are luck. the three questions yes. that always get? The story. Yes. Oh, it's three stories. So let me go back. So the name of the book is a 50-year-old millennial, and he extended it past millennials. Oh, but the intent was never to have a book about millennials. That was never the idea. Only when we stumbled across it did he realize that and servant leadership applies not just to millennials, but to everyone. So the three stories, right. just for your own amusement, that, that will always get an answer is, how did yes. you come to this particular country? How did your parents meet? And tell me about the time you were almost killed. I've Ooh. yet to find someone that didn't have one of those three stories. Now, oh, oh, you don't have to have all three. I was thinking, oh, crumbs, I've got to find the three stories. You just have to have the answer to one of those three questions. One of those. Now, that necessarily might not give you the story for your hook. Probably won't, mm. but it's a, it's a good thing to do at a party. <laughs> then you actually have people you can talk to and yeah, you don't right. stand there yeah, looking embarrassed, shuffling your feet. You. Well, <laughs> And, and the idea is you find the hook and then you can build up to that hook with a story. Yes. Yeah, or so you can just have a really quick hook that you, you, you throw out there and you don't need the back, the real backstory. Well, it depends if you're making a presentation, for example, or you're speaking at a, at, at a, an event, you're probably not going to have to go into the backstory too deeply. Yeah. But when you're asking someone to read 60,000 words, your hook is probably, you can, you can get your hook in one sentence. So you, your evolution to your hook that is what builds the credibility, and that's what sort of um, infuses the reader with the trust, the, the, the big three, know, like, and trust. And so that's where the, the, the backstory is important. But everyone confuses their backstory with their book. Your book is not a memoir, okay? Nobody mm -hmm. cares. Okay? <laughs> the purpose of your backstory is to illuminate your hook because we are all motivated by self-interest. Here in Canada, there's a great joke. Two hundred they're walking in the forest. They come across an angry bear. Bear rears back. The first guy says, what are we going to do? The second guy says, run. And the first guy says, don't be ridiculous. You can't outrun a bear. They can go 30 miles an hour. And the first guy says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I have to outrun you. <laughs> we are okay. all motivated by self-interest. And so right. no one other than your mother, and maybe not even your mother is going to read your book because it just has a story. The purpose of the hook is to give someone some, an actionable thing that they can use. And then the third part of it, of course, is the tips. And lots and lots and lots of recommendations and plans and tips. Right. So there's a whole kind of practical aspect to it. Because, I mean, Anton always, always, always told me from the very beginning, when you do a webinar, you have to give practical tips where people can go away and actually do something. Yeah, absolutely. And I got really upset. And I kept saying, I just want to philosophize and talk about all these interesting things. And he would get really angry. Then we would have a big fight. And then we would make up as friends do. Um, but he's right. Uh, and, I, and now I really do try to do it. So what practically can people take away from this? I think, you know what? There should be a tier of tips. There should be something you can do in five minutes that will change things. Just, uh, just a oh, little right. something. 
Like if you were in so, if you were in security, you would say second party authentic second party authorization. Just a really right. fast little thing that you can do to increase your security. Then there should be something that you can do a little bit takes a little bit more and something that's even more far reaching. But yeah, you'll never go wrong with giving people who really want advice as much advice as you can give them. Right. And you tend to talk in threes. You said the big three, which was think, like, and know. What was it? The, the yeah, big three? like, know, and trust. Oh, almost. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I can remember it. Do you always talk in threes? Well, three is the basic structure of so many things. Three mm. is, is the structure of a sermon, for example. So, so age-old, a formula for a sermon is, tell you what I'm going to tell you. Tell you. Tell you what I just told you. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which so, is which is also for a conference, kind of when you're giving a talk, that's kind of what you do. And I try to build my conference talks like that. Yes. But you kind of feel a bit silly is, is that as you're telling them the bit in the middle, you think, well, I already told you I was going to tell you that. And then you get to the end, you say, well, I've already told you that. So it seems a bit pointless. But when you're bringing a message, I mean, I, I do agree, it really does work. I, I would suggest you kind of go meta on it and you say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a sermon format. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you again. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you. Own it, man. Just own it, and 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 then go in hard. Now, I just told you what I'm going to tell you. Now, I'm going to tell you, right? right. And the third time, now, I just told you, so now I'm going to tell you what I just told you. Own it and revel yeah, it. Now, now I've got really confused. The auditors go, I'm not sure what he's told me now anymore. <laughs> yeah. Because he keeps telling me he's told me. He keeps but, telling me. He keeps telling me. Listen, I'm just giving you advice. And, and the only kind of advice I ever offer is unsolicited. So take that as, well, a, as you may. Oh, except for people who pay you. They've solicited yes, God you. Bless and those people. <laughs> and and you, you, and you talked about three uh, basic tips. You're saying something you can go away, do in five minutes, something you can do in the medium term and something more yeah. long term. Yeah. Um, that kind of makes sense to me in the sense of kind of what I get when I go on podcasts is what's the first thing somebody can do for their brand set, what appears right, right. when somebody Googles your name. And the answer is rewrite the meta title or the title and uh, description of your homepage because that's, what, uh, uh, what, that's what's at the top. It's what yes. Google will index within a day and it's what will be visible and changed immediately. That's, that's a great tip. tip. That's a great tip. Yeah. But it and seems it to me so obvious and simple, but. It, it isn't. It's a good tip. And so that's the thing that goes back to what is obvious to you isn't necessarily obvious to everybody else because you have that level of expertise that nobody else has. That's a really common mistake people make. They go, oh, everyone it, knows that. No, as a matter of fact, not everyone knew that you were raised by wolves or this guy's dad was a lunatic who threw dogs out the side door of cars. <laughs> oh, were you raised by wolves and your wolf, your dad was a wolf and he walked his own dog? Yeah, <laughs> that would be that would be a background. That would be that a would background. be a great background. And in fact, for the for the book, when I wrote the fundamentals of brand search, first thing I did was was hand it over to the people at Bright Ray Publishing who helped me to write it. And Emily yes. Bartdorf just said, "I don't understand a word of it." And I thought, "But this is so simple." Yes, and it isn't. And it it, it isn't that it isn't simple. It's I was using lots of vocabulary that she didn't know, uh, delving into things that I assume people know, which is, for example, what SERP is, search engine results page. It's right. an acronym, and they right. don't. 
the best way to explain that is uh, so I wrote this book here in Canada. It's called Emma's for Maple. We sold a ton of them. And mm. so I'm a rock star in elementary schools and libraries. <laughs> Nowhere else, and certainly not at home. No, no man is a prophet in his own home. But um, one of the things I do is I sort of, forgive me, I sort of show the kids the back of my head and I say to them, so I'll do it with you. Can we do it? Yep, yep, All yep. Right. Right. For, for the audience listening on audio only, Mike is turning around and showing the back of his head, which is why we won't hear him very well. All right. Now, do I have a bald spot? Yes. No, seriously. Do I have a bald spot? Yes. No, no, really. Stop kidding around. Do I have a bald spot? A big one. Yes. So this is what the kids do the third time that, that <laughs> their, their turn comes. They're yelling. Yes, you stupid, <laughs> stupid man. You have a bald spot. <laughs> so I'm six years old. This is brilliant. And then I tell them, well, that's weird because when I'm brushing my teeth in the morning, I can't see my bald spot. Right. So the concept is what you see is determined by your vantage point. Mm. Right. When I'm brushing my teeth in the morning, I don't see my bald spot. I don't see this great big thing in the back that you can land a helicopter on. The editor always sees the bald spot because the editor is looking at it from a different angle than you are. Right, so you should always listen to your editor. Always listen to you. You're going to hate them. You're going to hate them, but always listen to your editor because they're looking at it from a completely different perspective. And of course, they're going to be right. Yeah, I mean, but and I mean, that's also kind of with, with business in general is that we look at it from our perspective, but listening to your editor will be the equivalent of listening to the salespeople, for example. Right. Because they're talking to the, the clients or even listening to the clients because they see the bald spot. Exactly. Exactly. Although sometimes the client can only see their own teeth. <laughs> We're going to stretch this analogy all the way there. No, editing is, is super, super, super important because we just can't see what we can't see. And someone who looks at it from a completely different point of view is going to. And there's just nothing worse than having mistakes in your book. It's just a terrible, terrible feeling. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that freaked me out as I kept going through it, looking for mistakes and uh, delayed the book by about a month in the end, because we'd got it all finished. And I kept thinking, I'm just going to read it one more time to double right. back. There's a great uh, saying about writing a book. They're never finished. They're just surrendered. And right. Okay. And that's true. Yeah. No. And then you get to the stage. I mean, your, your experience is the same as at some point you say, well, there is probably still something in there that isn't quite right. And I've just got to give up on it and let it go. There is, you have to sort of, now the beauty of digital books now is that you can, when someone says, look at, if you're writing 30,000 words, what are the odds that every one of them is going to be right? 60,000 words. What are the odds that you're not going to mess up a contraction, which spell check can't figure out or mess up a possessive or God help you misspell a name. So you're going to, no one is, is perfect and the editor will get you to the 99% percentile, yeah. but you're going to come back. There's always, always, always missed it. The idea that, that you've read a perfect book just says that you didn't find the errors because they're there because they have to be. What are the odds? You know, there's, so if there's five, five words to a sentence, so 30,000, so that's 150,000 words or whatever, whatever. No, you're getting confused there. There's going to be a mistake in there. You can't, you can't go old for 150. They just, you just can't. Right. Yeah. No, no, no. And I mean, the other question as well is when you've written it, you think, well, I could have written this bit better, putting to one side any kind of typographical errors. Yes. You kind of think, well, I could have written this bit better. I could have told that story better. Or I could have rephrased this or reordered that. Oh, and that's so important. And that's really, really essential. 
Jason. And that's something that I really preach is that I don't think you should write your book for your subject. I don't think you should write your book for your reader, but I think that you should devote every single effort, every word, every inflection, every paragraph, every thought has to be in the service of your reader because you are actually bringing them there. So they're stopping what they're doing, all their earthly you know, needs and, and things that they're doing. They put on hold to read what you're telling them, to listen to what you're telling them, not just telling them, but infusing it in their mind. Because when mm. we read something, it's different than when we're told something. It's, when we read it, it feels like we're learning it rather than we're being told. And of course, we have a far greater tolerance for something that we see ourselves. This is an extraordinary gift that a reader brings you. So everything you can do, everything you, you can even think of has to be in the service of a reader. There are 15 okay verbs in one great one. Find the great one, right? There are 15 right. analogies. Find the best one. You know, make the extra search on whatever it is in terms of, of finding something online. You know, take that extra step because you can never repay what the reader is bringing to you. So everything you do has Mike. I have three words: love the reader, make their right. life as easy as possible, but don't write your book for them. Right? Oh dear, that, that's quite a complicated concept, really. In many ways, I mean, I would have thought initially it just means saying you a lot as opposed to I. Yes. <laughs> no, it's a little different than that. I, I, the the problem is is that your book is your book. It's your fingerprint. If you try to make your book, I mean, you want to address what your reader wants. You always have to keep your reader in mind. But I think it's a terrible mistake to write your book based on what you think the reader wants. Now, some people have a ton of information and they write very technical books to it, but that's really not your truth. That's really not your story. You have to put your your um, your very best truth and your very best product out, and then if it's valuable to the reader, they'll decide, not you. That oh sorry that brings up something kind of I've always found really interesting is that uh, in in marketing everybody kind of tells you think about what your your user or your audience or your client needs or wants right. and adapt everything you do to that. No. And I've well well then that's the point it's kind of with the barking dogs the punk folk group and Buwa and Koala and now Brand Surfs is I've kind of said this is what I think is important this is what I think is needed. Buwan Kuala now on screen, 53 bright <laughs> songs from the TV series. I wrote Love 53 that. songs in four years. I wrote one a month. It was mad. But coming back to the topic is that my wife and I made Buwan Kuala because of what we had in our souls and our hearts. Yes. And it just so happened that it appealed to children. And somebody said to me, um, the people at ITV International, when we made the TV series, where do you get the ideas from? Which kind of group of children are you talking to, to understand what it is they want? We're going, we don't ask anybody. We just make it up and we think it's funny. And luckily for us, the kids do too. That's the only way great art is made. No one makes art, and this is art, with an eye towards pleasing the client. Unless you make mediocre art, you, you make art with an eye towards pleasing yourself. And, but you do everything. For the benefit of the of the reader or the watcher, I mean, and that's that's craft, that's imagination, that's practice, that's finding the right verb, that's finding the right analogy. Everything is oh, done uh, in service of the reader. But the project, there's only one, there's only one customer, and that's yourself. Absolutely, I think that's the best way in the world to finish this episode. That was the most wonderful little conversation of thirty minutes that that I really, really enjoyed a great deal. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, thank you that for having me. It was delightful. Now we're going to pass the baton for oh, next week. Oh, I love passing the baton. 
to Olga and the secrets of good technical SEO audit. So back to techie geeky stuff with Olga. She's absolutely delightful, very sporty, and absolutely full of great advice about good technical SEO audits. I think she should have put great or amazing there, getting the right adjective. Uh, could you, you go, Olga, right? here is I am passing you the baton right like that. I'm blowing in your direction. Brilliant. That's the first time we've had the baton blown across <laughs> to next week, which is the delightful way that Mike has chosen to do it. Thank you so much, everyone, for watching. We'll see you next week. And a quick song for you, Mike. A quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Mike. It was a lot of fun. Very nice. Very nice. Don't <laughs> quit you, your day job. Brilliant. Thanks, everyone, <laughs> for watching. Um, we've now got the Cali Cube outro coming up.